everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This episode features an extensive discussion about sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. So, for episode 6, I was joined by Dr. Livia Smith and we spoke about her extensive and really brilliant research into how courts respond to rape victims in the UK. and Dr Livia Smith is a lecturer in criminology and social policy at the University of Loughborough in the UK and she's done amazing research into how the criminal justice system deals with sexual assault cases and how it interacts with rape victims and how that can be reformed in a sense Olivia's research has been used as an evidence base on rape justice by the UK Home Office and the Ministry of Justice and also by organizations like Rape Crisis that support victims one thing that might be relevant to our conversation is the CPS and CPS is the Crown Protection Service in the UK and very simply put it is the government's prosecution service so if you go to trial and if you've complained if you file a case and it goes to trial you get assigned a government lawyer a prosecution lawyer on behalf of the crown or the uk government so i'm very excited to share this conversation and i don't want to hold you further so let's dive in Hi Olivia, welcome to Talking Research. To get started, do you want to tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh thank you for having me on here as well. Um so I'm Olivia Smith and I'm a researcher on violence against women. I live in Cambridge. I work in Loughborough, which if you know anything about UK geography is quite far away. So at the moment mm-hmm. I'm sort of trying to figure it out. Um but yeah, so my main research is around uh, justice responses to rape and what justice looks like and um, how we can make that better. Wow, okay. So how did you get into this research on uh, justice systems and how we can make justice better in the UK? I'm not really sure. <laughs> um I when I was at university, I was interested in becoming a lawyer, but my friend experienced rape while at university and I was mm-hmm. at the same time learning about the justice system and seeing all the problems with that. So I sort of became interested and I um ended up going and doing some work experience with barristers where I came a little bit more shocked about what was happening and then I just found my way into doing a PhD so I just kind of fell into it I don't I don't really know how I got here hmm. and in your research you've looked at court responses to rape victims and uh, the, the research that we're going to be focusing about in this conversation so this is a very broad question but if you had to summarize what court responses to rape victims in England and Wales look like to someone who doesn't have more than a mainstream news based understanding of it how would you do that um i would summarize it as confusing to be honest it's quite difficult <laughs> for someone who doesn't know the system hasn't got any legal training to make sense of it because there are lots of very particular rules to the English and Welsh system in particular. Um we have a really strange system called the adversarial system which has a lot of benefits mm-hmm. but it also has some things that can be difficult for outsiders to understand. So one of the things that people don't realize is that the victim won't have their own lawyer at trial. They often talk about oh my lawyer but actually a trial is only between the English and Welsh state and the defendant. It's not the victim is just a witness and so that mm-hmm. can create some difficulties that 
I think um, we might talk about later, but um, actually getting people to understand that can be the, the first step in understanding how to make the system better. I mean, that's very interesting because I've heard of that sort of argument. Uh, I spoke to Mito Sanyal, who's a cultural historian in the first episode, and she was talking mm-hmm. about the Roman Bolonsky case. And when the victims, Samantha, she wanted the case to be dismissed, uh, the court didn't allow her to dismiss the case because they said this crime had been committed against the state so they they almost put that above her rights as the as the survivor so what do you what, where do you think that comes from i think it comes from a well-meaning attempt to to try and say no we we think this is wrong and we we want to show that what happened to you was wrong by dealing with it even if you're not in a place where you want to yet um, and that's come from places where, for example, where they might still be in a relationship together and, and so there is there might be coercion going on. But it's misled mm-hmm. because it can put people in more danger. And luckily, I, do, I need to say, luckily, that is rare now. It's It doesn't happen very often. The CPS, the sort of body that deals with the prosecutions, they do take account of what um, the victim wants and they it's, it's very, very rare that that happens. However, a couple of years ago, there was a case you might have heard of in Wales, a woman called Sarah that's not her real name, but we call her Sarah, um, was actually convicted of perverting the course of justice because she was raped by her husband and was being threatened. She wanted to retract the um, claim, but the CPS said, no, we're going to go forward with it anyway. So she said, okay, well, I was lying. I I didn't really make, uh, he didn't really rape me. So they then put her in prison because she had been raped and said that she hadn't been. So it really highlights that there are some big problems going on eventually there was a, an appeal and she still has a conviction but that conviction mm. was dealt with in the community instead of in prison but it still shows that we're we're not quite sure how to deal with this in the criminal justice system still despite a lot of good effort and you've consistently investigated the gaps in sexual assault cases in the criminal justice system the gaps in how the responses of courts are just inadequate in dealing with survivors and you know uh, looking at them and uh, making sure they're not re-traumatized during trial so what forms do these gaps take i think it comes down to um the differences in what a victim needs or a survivor needs in after uh, rape or sexual assault and what the court needs to do so a victim and survivor they need to be able to tell their story in a way that makes sense to them they need to be heard they need to be believed they need um they, they sort of talk about how there's a need for um feeling like there's an, a community around pe- of people around them who are saying what happened to you was wrong and also want some accountability for the, for the perpetrator the courts are instead based on very narrow views of relevance so people cannot just say their story as they want to they have to sort of very strictly keep it to uh, apparently relevant issues and then they have to be tested they can't just be believed they have to be uh, cross-examined and tested and that often happens in a way that becomes inappropriate or irrelevant um so we've got no problem with testing evidence i think everybody you know, wants to know that the the only people who get convicted are are guilty people. But there's a way of testing the evidence that's relevant and about relevant issues. Mm -hmm. And there's a way of testing the evidence that's about myths um, and stereotypes of people and in a way that's that's not okay. Um, So an example I often give is that in one of the trials that I witnessed, the defence was asking about how um, the complainant the alleged victim was drinking wine out of a mug instead of a glass 
And the assumptions seem to be that that would be relevant to whether or not she consented. And obviously it's not. So there's a way of... The way of yeah, I know. It's it's really... Um, other questions included things like, you know, they, they were the only member of the family who weren't caring for an elderly relative. And that seemed to be... Well, it, it, the, what's clever is that they don't say, that means you can't believe her. But they put those questions in and then they say, I think you're a liar, aren't you? And so the jury are then left to sort of fill the gaps in. And I think that's um, a very misleading of the jury. And one thing that we know the barristers are not allowed to do, they're allowed to do a lot of stuff and they should be doing a lot of stuff to test the evidence, but they're not allowed to mislead the jury. And that's what it does seem to be doing. Yeah, that's that's just ridiculous. <laughs> I, I mean, when you hear about these things in the news, you're just like, how is this allowed? How are such questions considered valid? But they, they do happen. So to give us an introductory overview what can be gained from addressing these gaps? I mean, to me, it's really obvious that we want to make sure that someone who's gone through such a traumatic experience, the court should absolutely hold the perpetrator accountable. But from a rational point of view or from an academic point of view, why should, what can we gain from addressing these gaps? Well, to be honest, it goes back to the very heart of democracy. If we want democracy to work, if we want society to work together, we have to trust the criminal justice system. We put our trust in the government to ensure that they will look after law and order, that we know that when we go about our lives, we aren't going to be at the will of someone who wants to come and be violent to us. And so if our system is failing in a way that so many people feel that they have not been heard and you know the government is currently doing a review because they're also worried that people are not being held to account where they should be. So this isn't just something that academics are saying, even the government is saying, something's happening that we we're not sure about and isn't isn't good so if the public aren't sure you know there's no research now that shows that police and some barristers say they they wouldn't report if this happened to them and so if we've lost trust in the system then it's it it means that really where do we stand in in society who can we trust and then the other thing is that on a really practical awful level it costs a lot of money to not deal with this well. It costs a lot of money um, in healthcare for people who have to go through and um, understand what's happened to them. And it, it's really just if the government wanted to deal with this on a really selfish level, it would save them a lot of money. It would boost the economy if we were to deal with this properly. But also just on a basic human principle, why would we not want to give justice to people who have been victimized yeah yeah and following from that you've discussed the mainstreaming of this rhetoric around survivor-centered criminal justice system so what does a survivor-centered criminal justice system look like to be honest i'm not sure what the government have realized is that people who are survivors who are victims they also vote and so it's a good political winner to say that the criminal justice system now has the victim at the center in reality while there have been improvements, that's often words or it's often sort of tinkering around the edges. And I, I don't want to give an overly negative view. There have been lots and lots of improvements. Um, there have been lots of policies that have been about trying to make things better when people give evidence. We now have a victim's commissioner who's in charge of sort of holding the government to account about victim's policy. But in reality, that victim's commissioner can do nothing but write reports. We need to give her... Mm -hmm proper powers to hold people to account. So while the governments say that they are interested in having the, the victim at the heart of the system, actually, in reality, they, they kind of just add on a few things that they think might help victims feel listened to. 
but not be. An example of that is um, victims are now often offered um, the chance to write a statement. It's called a, a victim personal statement, which is about the impact that the crime has happened uh, has had on them. And that's meant to then be taken into account in sentencing. Now, we know that for a variety of reasons, legitimate and illegitimate, that doesn't tend to get listened to. And yet we're putting victims through this system where they think that they have this really big responsibility and they don't. So there's something very difficult there about trying to balance out this need to make victims feel listened to, but then actually really genuinely mm. doing that. We are moving towards uh, such, a, such a system, like you've pointed out, that there have been movements in England and Wales to accommodate. So I was more during trials and, uh, and even conversation around a criminal justice system and how it treats rape victims has exploded since Me Too, I think, uh, which is partly why Me Too broke, because there was this feeling that the system was just not letting, uh, was just not doing anything, it was just letting you down. But previous arguments for resisting a greater consideration for survivors at trial has been that such conditions affect a defendant's right to fair trial. You've built up on on the work of previous researchers who rebut this argument by suggesting that it's possible to balance these two considerations, that we can uh, we can respect a defendant's right to fair trial, we can uphold that, while we also have greater consideration for survivors at trial. So can you tell us more about that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I think this kind of gets to the heart of some of the really difficult things that academics are trying to understand around rape and the responses to that. One of the things that we have to ask ourselves, just slightly, off, I'll come back to what you said, but we often um, have a debate about, do we want more convictions? And most people would say yes, even the government are saying something's happening here where there are a high level of um, reports and that isn't carrying through to conviction. And so we need to ask, why not? And uh, should there be convictions? And, and if they should, then why isn't it happening? But I'm also aware that actually simply increasing the number of convictions, it, it kind of just adds to the prison population. It doesn't necessarily prevent people experiencing rape. And it can it can be a false goal. And actually, maybe mm. what we need is to make sure that trial is fair for everybody and not just fair for the defendant. Now, the defendant has a right to fair trial, and I'm absolutely not saying that we should get rid of that or lessen that. What I'm saying is that it's been misinterpreted as meaning that the trial should have no disadvantage to the defendant, that anything would be inappropriate if it if it wasn't gonna if it was going to go against the defendant. So an example I've got there is where um I heard a barrister in court say, the thing is, this complainant is so sympathetic. She had um she was deaf and had severe learning disabilities. And he said she's so sympathetic that the jury are always gonna feel sorry for her, and so it can't be a fair trial. Now, that isn't that. Look at the implications of something like that. That's saying that basically a defendant could go around and, you know, abuse anybody who is considered sympathetic because then they could say, well, but I'm not going to get a fair trust. You're going to like her and not me. So I think that we yeah. just be really careful about that. Um, another example is where I had someone, they, the victim had gone through and shown it was a stranger rape and she had gone through and said he lived here on this street in this door and he, she described the house um, and the the real address was the one next door to the one that she had offered and they uh, the CPS were saying I think we should show her google maps and show her the numbers and get her to pick the front door rather than asking her to pick a number and 
the defendant said uh, the defense said no we can't do that because she might pick the, the door that's actually his she she might say that she was raped in the defendant's address and that wouldn't be fair to him now if she was you know this this woman who was 15 had is saying this man who lived in this address raped me and we're saying that it wouldn't be fair for her to get a second chance she's got the one number wrong that it, it's it makes no sense and so that isn't what fair trial is about but that's what yeah the defense are kind of saying the other thing i would say is that we all have human rights we don't only have human rights when we've been accused of a crime and so while those rights for defendants are important we also need to recognize that the rights for all witnesses are important and we have a right to privacy we have a right to protection from intimidation and torture and some people have committed suicide after their um, cross-examination we have a right to life and that is not being upheld if we're asking questions that are leading to those those rights being breached as well so it's absolutely possible to balance things out it's absolutely possible we just need to look at what is relevant and how can we ask this in a way that is fair rather than in a way that is re-traumatizing and those things are possible to do for sure uh and even reading that argument that you made in your article about how it's not just it's not just about the human rights of the defendant it's also about the human rights of the survivor the person who's made the complaint that uh, i think is something that is just not emphasized enough mm-hmm. And you spoke about convictions and I want to pick up on that because during my education, there was a seminar that I attended, which was about, it was an active bystander training. Mm. And we had a person who used to be a police officer who sort of came to deliver a seminar and he trains people. His name is Graham Goulden and he goes and trains people on how to be, how to prevent sexual crimes from happening in social situations. If you witness something, you know, someone not behaving normally or someone behaving like a predator how to uh, intervene but in a safe way and he pointed out that convictions in Scotland were uh, in the last year you could count on your fingertips and I can't bring that statistic up that is anecdotally that is something that I've registered that convictions for rape uh, cases in the UK are minuscule is that is that true it depends how you measure it Uh, and this is a really controversial area so Most people would measure convictions from the number of cases that are reported to the police to the number of cases that end in a conviction for that crime. However, um, the sort of traditional way that conviction statistics are reported by the government is that it's from the number of cases that are brought to trial or charged to the number of cases that end in conviction. Um, And that can include cases that end in the conviction for a similar but not the same offence or it could involve conviction for any offence. Um, so, for example, if there was a rape allegation with you know, maybe a broken arm included and the conviction ended up being for the broken arm but not the rape, would that be included in, in the statistics? It's not always clear. Um, and so that's why there's a lot of confusion around this. In general, if we were to take it from the level of cases that are reported to the police compared to the cases that end in conviction for rape, it tends to be the sort of agreed figure is somewhere between 7 and, and 10%, which is very, very low. Um, for other offences, it's the average is something like 29%. So it, it's very low compared to those. But there are differences as well. So um, a study by Liz Kelly found that actually, for black women, the conviction rate was something more like 
So we need to be really clear that there are some people who are not getting justice more than others. In Northern Ireland, where I've also done some work there, last year they had nine convictions for rape um, in Northern Ireland. And obviously Northern Ireland is smaller, mm-hmm. but that equated to um, 1% of cases that were reported to the police, which is an absolutely tiny amount. Also building up on what you said about convictions, it's really important to not, you know, like you said, not just focus on getting more convictions because I'm from India and here there's been this huge drive since 2002, since, sorry, since 2012, this massive case in New Delhi made global headlines, mm. uh, gang rape of a woman on a bus. And since then, everyone was sort of bloodthirsty for mm. the perpetrators and um, there was this huge push to introduce the death penalty for specific rape cases and I think I do think that that was what the perpetrators were awarded uh, and, th- and that that seems to be the general consensus that oh rape is a heinous crime hang the rapist or you know poison the rapist but that is just extremely dangerous as well do you want to do you want to talk about that yeah I mean I again I do feel conflicted because I do want rape to be taken seriously and I think traditionally it hasn't been and I also fully understand I don't think that we should tell people when they've been raped that they shouldn't want to they shouldn't Mm -hmm. love this I'm not saying that what I do worry about is that there's a tendency to um by making sentences harsher by making this idea that rape is really unusual and really extreme when actually it's at some people it's their everyday life um and it's very common you know globally it's found one in four women in the uk some estimates suggest one in four some suggest one in five women it's 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 a lot of women who are experiencing this and you know a lot of Mm. young men in particular too or gay men and i think that that means that there are a lot of people who are raping and that means that they that a rapist is not this kind of extreme monster, but actually they might be our friend or our father or our husband. And so it's actually really important that we stop othering and recognise that rapists are normal people. And then that's when we can deal with what they're doing. And that's when we can prevent rape because we recognise that this isn't some sickness that some weirdo in the corner has. This is something that is in our our everyday lives and throughout our culture and throughout the world, all the different cultures in the world. And so my worry with focusing on convictions is that we rely too much on this idea that the rapist is a monster. And that really means that we don't have to look at ourselves and the role that culture's done. Mm-hmm. I would say is that um, the case of Francis Andrade in England in um, 2013 is another example of this. So she, the the case ended in a conviction for her abuser, but she committed suicide before it got there. And so technically, if we're saying that convictions are what we want, then that trial was a success. But I think that we can all kind of agree that that doesn't look like justice if someone's lost their life because of this process. I agree. I mean, th- when I say that there's this there's this bloodthirst for uh, getting more convictions or getting the rapist, th- the death penalty in my country, I mean, that comes massively from society and from a society that wouldn't examine its own role. You know, uh, these men who are clamoring for the blood of these rapists, they would, you know, walk on the streets and harass women the next day like nothing has happened. So 
what you pointed out before this was uh, rape myths and you briefly mentioned that and i think just that term rape myths it rings familiar that's something that we've kind of heard but just to ground our discussion uh, what are rape myths and how are they used in sexual assault trials uh, so rape myth generally understood to be any misunderstandings about rape or who it happens to or what happens afterwards and that means that the rape itself or the impact it's had is trivialized or sometimes even justified so there are lots of different types of myth they that doesn't mean that people don't experience rape in the ways that the myth suggests so the kind of traditional rape myth that we used to talk about is that rape occurred rarely in the dark alleyway between strangers usually with some form of violence or threat involved that the victim would physically resist be very visibly upset and would report to the police immediately. And that doesn't mean that that doesn't happen. People are attacked in those ways and they do respond in those ways. But most people will not experience rape in that way. Most people, it's 90% of people will know their attacker well and they won't go to the police immediately. They might respond in a variety of ways. They might not respond you know, upset, they might laugh, they might be very calm. Um, and things, you know, obviously, it'll change over time as well as people sort of process what's happened. And the most common one is that people do not physically resist often, very, very, very often people, their brain just tells them, relax, you won't be hurt if you relax. And so they comply, they will follow someone into a room when, you know, now, you know, looking back afterwards, they're like, why did I do that? But at the time, their brain is like, just just do it. They have no choice in the matter. They just comply and they just relax. There's no physical injuries because they're really relaxed in that time. And that's because our body knows how to make us okay. But society is expecting an injury afterwards. And that isn't necessarily what's what happens. So it means that then when we come to court and people are, are expecting to hear certain things, so they're expecting to hear evidence of injuries, you know, vag- vaginal tearing or something like that, or they're expecting to hear the victim ran away and they ask things like well why wouldn't you shout if your friends were that were downstairs why wouldn't you shout out to them of course they would then come and help you and there's no understanding that in the moment of the rape that person's brain is is stopping them doing that and so because there's a sort of a disconnect between the way that we know trauma works and the way that the trial expects trauma to work yeah and um especially post me too we think of rape myths as somewhat archaic. I mean, the more the conversation has been, and by we, I mean people like me and you who would be more exposed to or who would seek out a discourse on sexual assault or sexual violence. But why do you think they're still relevant to sexual assault trials? I think that Me Too has done a lot of really good things in that it's highlighted just how common things are and it's it's opened up the discussion about the different ways that people experience rape and and not just rape but sort of that what we call a continuum between rape and good sex and there can be bad sex and then there can be sort of coercive sex and then there can be very violent rapes and there's a sort of there's a continuum that we didn't used to recognize that now we do but some people have um, found it overwhelming to deal with the recognition of how common this is and so there's almost been like a backlash uh, of people saying no we don't believe you and fundamentally although um, me too has helped there is still a really high level of assumption that 
people make false allegations all the time or that people lie about this. Um, actually, the, the CPS in England and Wales, they did a study. They estimate the number of false allegations at around 1% of cases, which is lower than for most crimes. So it's actually really not a problem with rape. Um, and where, where they do happen, it's, it's quite clear trends that we've got. We can identify patterns. So there's this kind of assumption still that there are lots of liars that we need to root out. The reality is that that isn't what's happening. And the other thing I would say is that there was a survey in October last year by a group called the End Violence Against Women Coalition, and they found that people still had some misunderstandings around consent within relationship um, and, again, the, this kind of need for physical resistance or how people tell consent, do you need to have said no, which in our law you don't have to have said no, but there's still misunderstandings. So while me too has helped it absolutely hasn't kind of covered all of the bases yet people still have really they're still not sure and when it comes to trial it's even more so because the way that trials are set up the way that we test whether something's true at, in court is very similar to the way that a rape myth works so you know if you were testing the truth in a burglary case the the method of doing that would be very similar to the way that you would test a, that, that you would believe a rape myth basically it's quite it's quite a technical thing but just just to sort of try and summarize it it's it's it fits with the way that we make decisions in court so it just happens to be very enforced within court and cps is the crown prosecution service in the uk right yeah so it's the main body who take the police investigation and then they take it through to court so they are effectively the government's lawyers i mean that's very simple. <laughs> the government's yeah. criminal lawyers. And what you said, I think it makes so much sense that Me Too has been a start. Me Too has been a great start, a very long-awaited start. But it is a start and there's a lot of work that needs to be done, a lot of conversation that needs to happen. I want to move on from rape myths and I want to talk about this really interesting idea that you talked about in your research. And uh, you've said that gendered bias exists, that, a gendered bias that exists in the criminal justice system. It stems from the ancient Greek idea of reason and rational thought. So you've talked about how the ancient Greek idea of reason that is so intrinsic to the criminal justice system in the UK is essentially gendered and it brings its own bias. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the criminal justice system in England and Wales focuses very much on this idea of the reasonable person. So a jury are kind of asked to say, did this person act how a reasonable person would be expected to act? And if not, does that mean that they might be lying? And so really what the jury are, are being asked, where there are different witnesses who are saying different things, is who seems to be most reasonable? Whose story is most reasonable? Whose story is most rational? And that ignores the fact that actually, what do we even mean by rational? I might think that I'm being rational by, by um, trying to be very friendly to someone so that they don't hurt me. But then in the cold light of day in court, it can look like I was leading them on or something like that. You know, that's that's how it's then portrayed. The rational thing to do would be, would be to be nasty to them. But of course, women often experience that being cold or nasty would escalate things. So we might be extra nice. And so this idea of what a reasonable person does ignores the different ways that we've been taught to act with each other and the different ways that women and men might might have grown up and, and learned about safety. In terms of the ancient Greeks, basically the argument is that ancient Greek philosophy was trying to go above 
overcome nature. So they found nature scary and erratic because they couldn't understand it. And so the idea was that you moved above nature by by reason, by removing emotions. And women were very linked with nature because of reproduction, because you know the earth was often considered female and all those sorts of things. It's all linked to fertility. And so when ancient Greek philosophy was trying to move away from nature, it was trying to move away from women that it considered then to be emotional. And throughout history, we've seen very similar things. This idea that women are more emotional than men is very rooted in, in a lot of beliefs across the world. That This idea that women could mislead um, because they could hide their orgasm, for example, was another thing that philosophers would say. So throughout science, throughout the Enlightenment, which really created our sense of truth in current situation in the current society it was all based on the idea that women are not trustworthy that women are deceitful and you know women used to not be able to be the same level of witness as men women rape was originally a property crime and so why are we expecting this justice system that was rooted in these ideas that women were not trustworthy and then we've also still got society where there's still lots of research that shows that um, women are less trusted as leaders because they're seen as a more emotional that the same actions and the same feelings are designated by by participants in research as being emotional when it's by a woman and rational or passionate uh, like a reasoned passion by a man so it's it's the same thing but we still very much believe that men are less emotional than women and emotion is then used as a reason to lie so i often saw um cases where they would say hell hath no fury like a woman scorned as an example of saying well of course she's lying because she's angry because she wants this man to, as her own um, and that would belie you know, evidence that he'd given her a head injury and had there were witnesses of him beating her up. And they were saying, no, she's just in this particular case. She, they said, oh, she's 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 angry that she didn't get the right type of chocolates at Valentine's Day. Don't you think it's you know unreasonable? Don't you spend all your life trying to work out how the female mind works? And and those, those things weren't then said. So therefore she consented. But what they were doing was saying, so you can't really trust her. So why if you can't trust her? her evidence then you have to acquit him you have to say he's not guilty and so it's all about not necessarily about saying talking about sex or consent it's about saying we just can't trust women's voices and I, I want to make a, a, a clear point that I understand that not all women's voices are treated the same so I think working class women in particular minority ethnic women uh, women of color they are also treated as particularly uncredible. Um, so I saw one woman who was a South African Asian woman who was told she was inherently overdramatic because she was, I mean, they didn't say because um, you're a woman of colour, but they repeatedly asked her about her background, about her visa status, and then said, you're inherently inclined to being overdramatic. You are, you make things up because you cannot help yourself. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this misleading the jury? I think it probably is. This, this is, this cannot be considered relevant to anybody outside of the justice system. So why are we asking those kinds of questions? Mm, yeah, and even asylum seekers, especially, I think they're especially vulnerable in this justice system. Yeah, absolutely. When you say that, I think and it, it's very clear that uh, ideas that we have about reason and consent, traditionally the ideas that we've had that are so, that cannot be disentangled from a conversation about how or, or how the criminal justice responds to rape victims, they're so gendered and they really need to be reformed if not um i don't know replaced and and that's something that you've 
you've recommended that a fundamental change needs to happen in the criminal justice system and i'm not saying that you've recommended that we do away with reason or we do away with uh by reason i mean yeah. reason in double quotes uh you haven't recommended that but you've said that uh a fundamental change needs to happen in the criminal justice system and this is not just idealistic it is also doable so w- what would that look like um i think it requires several different things to sort of come together so one of the things that would help is if we actually gave juries some more evidence about um actually women are not more emotional than men and there's no evidence that a working class woman is more emotional than a middle class woman so there are lots of ways that lawyers could be in charge of that I'm you know I'm not trying to take charge of lawyers but there's a lot of things that lawyers could agree that would just provide really basic information that would make sure that juries are well informed the prosecution barrister and the judge need to challenge these things when they come up these ideas should be robustly challenged because they mislead the jury and they don't provide confidence in the justice system which is the main job of a barrister and the main job of a judge is to make sure that the public confidence will remain in the justice system the other thing that i think would be really helpful is to create some form of advocacy or lawyer for the victim and that's a very controversial topic because people are worried that that would be against the fair trial of the defendant but they happen quite a lot in your other european countries um including other adversarial countries so there are lots of ways that we could provide support legal support for the victim where they are able to challenge these kinds of misleading representations of um gender and and of ethnicity and you know migration status and and yet you know because although we're saying well the prosecution should do it they're not doing it and the judge isn't doing it and the judge is worried that if they intervene too much then it will go against them it will look like it you know that's not been fair either so if we had someone else who was specifically there to test is there a, a myth happening here do we need to just make sure that there's a, a note to the jury saying to be clear that you can be unlikable and still you know be truthful kind of thing the other thing that i think we need to do is open up our courts to accountability so um something that happened after my research is that in northumbria a woman called vera bird developed with a, a sort of set of people just members of the public volunteers who were trained and they went into trials and they watched trials and they noted where these myths had come up so that then they could feed back to the um judges and the barristers and the cps so that they could learn lessons so i think we could do that as well but primarily we need to recognize that this is misleading the jury that this is against the the interests of the public and so actually if we were to explain to barristers that look look at what's happening this isn't okay then i do believe that barristers want the best for justice and that they would reconsider how they're doing things you haven't examined this specific question as far as i'm aware in independent research but i mean from your extensive academic knowledge and research on court responses do you think that juries are suited for a criminal justice trial when it comes to sexual assault or sexual violence because it is such an emotionally charged crime in terms of how it is responded to the perceptions around it and um 
you know, when you talk about reforming the criminal justice system or when we talk about the problems with the criminal justice system, it, a lot of the conversation comes around to, you know, how do we present these uh, facts better to juries or how do we make sure that juries don't get swayed by, um, you know, arguments that just have nothing to do with the case. Do you think jury a jury system is suited to a criminal justice trial about sexual assault? Um, I'm torn to be honest. Um, there is a huge debate going on and a lot of academics and other researchers and activists who I really respect and trust are arguing that we shouldn't have juries. So they are arguing that actually a jury is never going to be well equipped and they don't understand things and giving a video at the beginning of trial isn't going to work. So there's a researcher called Dominic Wilmot and he tested juries, mock juries, and he found that actually it were these ideas of these rape myths were as embedded as other forms of prejudice like racial prejudice and so we wouldn't expect a short 10 minute video to stop someone being racist so why are we expecting a 10 minute video to stop someone believing rape myths which is what the current government plan is to do that said my fear is that what's the alternative i think that to assume that judges don't have similar beliefs is probably mis- misleading too um I think the main problem that we've got with juries is that we don't know why they convict or don't convict. There's no sort of accountability for their decision making. So at least with the ju- a judge, they have to explain how they've got to their decision for guilty or not guilty. And then that can be checked. Whereas with a jury, we've got no idea. It could be any reason. And so there needs to be some quite radical discussions, I think, about what we could do there potentially finding some way that doesn't intimidate the jury doesn't change their influence their views but that does provide some form of check that they have made reasonable you know that they that their decision making has gone along with the law and that isn't completely random or based on myths or misleading information but yeah to be honest I'm really I'm really torn I I can see both sides of the story and um, there is some research coming out in England that's suggesting that maybe the rate myths we think aren't as bad with juries as we thought um but there's a lot of methodological problems with that research and it's um it still finds a lot of problems so uh, i yeah i'm torn to be honest hmm. and you know just looking at your research and looking at your methodology you've gone to courtrooms to observe trials um and record them and then from those trials extract your findings and study them critically and you've also done critical discourse analysis which is looking at policy documents length, lengthy policy documents and seeing what emerges from there and uh you've also like you said interacted with a lot of specific cases of sexual violence and doing this research has this been emotionally draining and how do you balance your emotional well-being with this work it's a strange one um it has it as particularly going into court that was really difficult watching and feeling powerless during trials where people were you know bearing their souls and that you know had a it was going to impact their life and i felt really guilty about feeling bad about it i felt really guilty that i was struggling because i was like i had no right to struggle because it wasn't me going through it and and i really had to work on actually recognizing that it's still not very nice to hear a four-year-old talk about those things and then see their perpetrator. Well, in one case I saw, he said, well, if she says I did it, then I did it. I just must have thought that she was her mother. You know, it was a four-year-old compared to an adult woman. And that got 
he got not guilty and I found that really difficult to watch those you know watch that that traumatized child and then watch it all come to nothing and so I had to find a way to kind of give myself space and spend time around people who also agreed with me you know who who I didn't have to kind of explain things to this is this is a kind of area where everyone has really strong opinions and it's amazing how you know I spent 10 years researching this and yet Joe Bloggs in the pub will still think he knows more than me and it's it's incredible how <laughs> people are just like no you're wrong there are lots of false allegations it's like well no I, I mean I know more than you <laughs> about this and there aren't and so I find that actually just spending time with other women or men who really get it and who like also understand these things and just looking to the future and recognizing that there is hope like things are changing like me too me too was really hard actually because it it meant that it was just everywhere like I couldn't escape everywhere I went there was a discussion of the stuff and I just you couldn't like watch the news and not be thinking about rape it was it was quite difficult um but at the same time it's a re- it's given me a lot of hope because people things are changing and and women are making a difference together and I think that is really important to recognize that this isn't all bad there are lots of great things that are happening and there's loads of reasons to be positive that's that's such a positive positive note to be nearing the close of this conversation towards but um the last thing I want to ask you before I let you go is what do future projects look like for you? What are you looking at now? And um, what do you want to look at in the future? Uh, so I'm currently looking at compensation. So the state gives compensation for victims of violent crime. And I'm looking at how that can be a form of justice in rape and sexual violence, um, as well as how there are some barriers to that. And that's another area where there's a lot of potential for change. So the government are currently doing a review, and I'm really hopeful that things will improve. So that's great. Um, and I'm also looking um, with some other researchers, we're trying to get a project going where we're going to look at mobile phone data and how mobile phone data is being used. Um, because there's been some really high profile cases in England about there's been media coverage of how the police are taking victims and defendants, actually, their phones as standard and then they're you know, trawling for sort of what we call digital dirt. Um, and so we're trying to understand a little bit more about how is social media evidence being used? How is text evidence being used? Um, sexting in particular, how is that being used at trial? Because we don't really know. So um, that's the next step. Hmm. Oh, <laughs> looking forward to that. But thank you, Olivia. Thank you for your time today. And really, I mean, what you said about talking to people who get it and um, yeah. just getting hope from them. I think that's so true. And what you're saying, like hearing you talk and also reading your work, it's given me so much hope. And I'm sure people listening will get so much hope from that and that people like you are doing all of this incredible and important research at, you know, sometimes an emotional cost. So thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And same to you as well. The same to you, because what you're doing is the same. Like you're giving someone a space to be able to, you know, hear that, oh, yeah, I'm not alone. Other people get this. There, there are people who are on my side. And so, yeah, I'm really grateful for being invited on and being a chance to be part of that. <laughs> Thanks. Wow, that's us at the end of this episode. That was the brilliant Dr. Olivia Smith. And we spoke about her research on court responses to sexual violence. So do let me know what you thought of this episode and the podcast in general. And you can do that using Twitter, Facebook, Gmail. We've expanded, which is really exciting. And I'll leave the links to that in the podcast description. So yeah, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Send us an email, write us a tweet. 
like us on facebook all of that and if you think we can improve in any way also reach out please and next week or weekend actually next sunday we're talking to a very exciting guest another exciting guest yeah it's it's a really great time we're talking to really cool people every sunday and we're talking about really great research and tune in then but before i go i want to say that if you need there are links to organizations that support victims and survivors of sexual violence so please check them out they're also in the podcast description i am asmita and this is talking research